do this, we pray in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, you are what you eat. Surely each of you have heard that saying, and its meaning is quite simple, uh, that your body's health depends in large measure on what you put into it. So children, uh, eating those vegetables, avoiding those sweets, matters. That a healthy and moderate and balanced diet is crucial to your body's well-being. Well, what is true for the body is also true for our souls. If we are to experience spiritual health, that is, the spiritual health of a nearness to God, of a more mature understanding, of a deepening holiness of life, of a greater thankfulness, and a more fruitful life to God's glory, then we must see to our spiritual diet. And indeed, the proper intake of God's word, a spiritual diet, is essential to our spiritual health. In fact, there is no other way to experience a growing life with God. This is exactly the thing which is James' emphasis in our verse today, as he uh, describes to these uh, Christians what a righteous life looks like what a growing spiritual life looks like. He gives attention to this matter of the intake of God's word. The uh, primary verb and object of that verb in the verse that we just read is this, that we are to receive the implanted word. You and I are to be those who receive this implanted word. Now I want to look at it first of all today by considering rather briefly what this directive means. And then secondly, we're going to see how this directive is to be practiced. And in particular, we're going to look at three kind of qualifying clauses in this verse that tell us how it is we are to receive this implanted word. Well, first of all, what this directive means. There we're told very simply, you and I are to receive the implanted Word. Now, that phrase, first of all, refers to a past action. It says that there is a word which has already been implanted inside of us. You, might, you and I might ask the question, well, when? When was the word implanted? And the answer is, was at our regeneration, the moment of our conversion, when you became a Christian. It was at that point when you experienced the sovereign uh, monergistic action of God when he brought you life as a dead sinner. When you were brought uh, into, uh, from a spiritual uh, uh, lethargy to spiritual life. That moment when you were given a heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone. That moment when you suddenly had spiritual eyes to see the horror of your own sin and Uh, spiritual ears to hear the voice of your Savior calling you uh, to new life in Him. It is that new birth that you experienced. As Jesus Himself uh, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And James is saying it was at that moment that the Word of God became implanted inside of us. The new birth was even through the instrument 
of God's word. That's what it actually says back in verse 18 of James 1. Of his own will, he, that is God, brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. So you and I experience the new birth, that saving activity of God, by means of the word of truth. And that's what he's saying here in verse 21. It is the implanted word. So God's word is like, as it were, a seed that is buried in the soil of our hearts, which germinates and begins to produce the plant of new life in Jesus Christ. And let me just, before we move on from this, let me just say that this is why it is so important that you use every possible means to bring your non-Christian friends and family members into contact with the Word of God. This is why we need to seek to tell them the gospel or to give them a gospel tract or a Christian book to read or to ask to meet with them to study the Bible or to bring them to a Bible study, or better yet, even to church, to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. It is because when God sovereignly saves a sinner, He does by implanting that Word which they hear deeply into their hearts. It is an implanted Word. But this refers not only to that past action of the Word being implanted, there's also here a reference to a present action in which you and I are directed to receive this implanted word. In other words, James is saying after the word was implanted at our conversion, we aren't done with it. It's not that we just need a little bit of gospel to get us initially saved and then we don't need the word of God anymore. Rather, he says to those who are Christians, Receive, and it's in the present tense, and it means uh, really to continue to receive. To receive, and then receive some more, and then receive yet more of this implanted word. That you need the word of God, not only for the inception of your spiritual life, but for the growth of your spiritual life. It's just like if you were to try to plant some grass outside. Well, you need to water it a lot in order to get, that plant, uh, to get that grass initially to grow. But then after that grass initially grows, guess what? It still needs more water. And so you continue to water it. And so it is with us. How does one become a Christian? The Word of God becomes implanted. How does one continue as a Christian? We are to keep on receiving that Word. And so I speak to you today, whether you have been a Christian... Two hours, or two decades, or for the entirety of your life as far back as you can possibly remember, however long you have been a Christian, James's word is still directed to you. Receive, continue to receive this implanted word. We need a continued intake of God's word. Well, what does this look like? Well, it means a lot of different things. It means... On the one hand, you and I need to engage in personal Bible reading. You need to have a schedule whereby you are regularly, daily, making your way through the Word of God. Similarly, you should read Christian books 
You should always have some Christian book that you are making your way through. At times you may be making your way through slowly, but you're still reading it. Read Christian books. Or perhaps listen to sermons in your car or have spiritual conversation about the Bible with your friends. Similarly, you should be receiving God's word in daily family worship in your home. That is, on a regular basis, whether it's uh, just you and one other person in your home or whether you have children in the home as well, whoever is in your home, that you would have a time daily in which you open God's Word and talk about it. You know, parenting is a, um, is a difficult thing. Often as parents, we kind of throw up our hands and we say, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I've said before that when Megan and I um, uh, went into marriage, we had no children and lots of theories about child rearing. And now that we have four children, we have no theories. And... Uh, I think that's often how it works. Uh, but this I do know, that one thing, in fact, the most important thing we can do for our children is to bring them into regular contact with God's Word. So even if we do nothing else, <laughs> but we seek sincerely to read and talk about and explain the Bible to them, that's something that is crucially important. So we need to have God's Word in our families, but we also need to receive God's Word at church. This congregation, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, is very intentionally a teaching, preaching church. I know your pastors. I know that what they bring you on a week-by-week basis is the Word of God. And that's a wonderful thing, that you would have worship services that are filled with God's Word, that you would have preaching that is opening up a text of Scripture and explaining it to you. That's a wonderful thing. It's what you most need. And so you need to seek to receive as much of God's Word in the public assembly of the saints as you possibly can. This is how you grow. And James says to you, receive, continue to receive in your lives over and over and over again this implanted word. So that's the directive. That's what this directive means. But now secondly, and with the remainder of our time today, I want us to see how this directive is to be practiced. That is, how are we to receive the word? And James, in this passage, gives us three phrases which explain how we can most effectively receive God's word. Those three things are this. First of all, he's going to tell us that the filth of sin must be removed. Secondly, the attitude of meekness must be adopted. And third, the goal of salvation must be kept in sight. The filth of sin must be removed. The attitude of meekness must be adopted and the goal of salvation must be kept in sight. So how are we to effectively read and benefit from the word of God in our lives? First of all, the filth of sin needs to be removed. Verse 21, therefore put away, he says, all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 
and receive with meekness the implanted word. That is, going hand in hand with receiving the implanted word is the idea that we need to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now notice for a second that Paul or that James here is speaking uh, to those who are already Christians. And so James would strongly take issue with anybody that says, well, once you're a Christian, you're going to have no struggle at all with sin. Now James is writing to believers who are obviously struggling with the temptations of wickedness and of filthiness in their lives. So to use Paul's language, there is indeed a warfare between the, the flesh and the spirit. The remaining remnants of sin continue to loom large even in the life of a true Christian. And so James here is saying not only that there will be continued sin in the life of the believer, but he's saying here that that continued sin needs to be continually removed if we are to make any spiritual progress and be able to receive God's word. The language that he uses is really the language of clothing. He says that we are to put away, which means that we're to take off. Maybe you can think of it this way. You're walking through the woods, and it's a cold, damp day. Maybe nighttime comes, and you can't quite see the steps that are in front of you, and suddenly you slip, and you fall into a mud puddle, and suddenly you're covered in mud and soaked head to toe. Well, what can't you wait to, to do? You can't wait to get home and to get into clean, dry clothes. Friends, that's kind of what our sin is like. Our sin makes us filthy. And we ought strongly to desire those clean, dry clothes of repentance. We are to daily remove all those things which displease our Lord. And so Colossians 3, uh, verses 8 through 10, describe this. When he says, now, Paul speaking to believers, Colossians 3, 8, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its, of its creator. Friends, we are to put these things away. We are to take these sins off. Now to do this, it means that we need to realize three things about our sin. First of all, you and I need to recognize that our sin is defiling. It's defiling. You know, the world thinks of sin as a trifling thing at best. It's a joke. People will say, oh, that dessert is so sinful. Or, oh, aren't you such a sinner? And they say it with a little sparkle in their eye. It's a joke to them, but for the sinner, for the true, excuse me, for the true Christian, he recognizes that that sin is no joke at all. It's a defiling thing, and he hates it. Notice the language that James uses here. He says that our sin is filthiness. It's wickedness. It's that which opposes the holiness of God. It's that which 
that separates mankind from the life of God. It's my sin. That's the reason that, that Jesus had to die on the cross. And so the true Christian takes a view of his sin that it's a defiling thing. The second thing that we need to realize about our sin is that our sin is extensive. It calls it not only wickedness, but rampant wickedness. The word rampant here referring to uh, that which is superfluous or left over or prevalent. And the idea is, is that we have lots of it. Things like murder or adultery or theft or lies. But it's not only those so-called big sins. Our sin runs even deeper than that. It's those half-truths by which we put ourselves in the best light. It's that sense of dissatisfaction that we have and discontentment over what God has or hasn't given us. It's the gnawing bitterness that we have toward another believer. It's the lustful glance or the visit to the pornography website. It's the fantasy about another spouse or another life. It's the poor use of the Lord's Day. It's the angry word that was spoken rashly. Or the selfish spirit that thinks far more of myself than about other people. Or the proud spirit that overestimates my own righteousness and exaggerates other people's faults. It's the harsh spirit that refuses to love other people despite their faults. It's the giving of the true and chief affection of our hearts to any other thing other than the living God. You see, sin runs very deeply in our lives. And for the true Christian, we ought not to just simply pick and choose what we deal with, but rather seeing the depth of our sin, we are to remove, as he says, all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So we see that sin is defiling, we see that it's extensive, and the third thing that the Christian must see about his sin is that it is sin that must be dealt with. There's an urgency to what James is saying here. There's an urgency to remove our uh, sin. Okay, just like uh, it was a couple, few months ago that uh, at one point someone, I don't remember who, in our house was going around and they began to smell, smell gas somewhere in the, in the home. Well, if you smell gas and you think you might have a gas leak, well, there's a certain urgency, isn't there, <laughs> to find out where that is and to take care of it. We didn't want the house to burn down. So we dealt with it. And dear friends, so the Christians should deal with our, our sin. And why is that? Because we realize that as long as we treasure sin in our hearts, as long as we uh, treasure sin, we are going to be more interested in protecting our sins rather than having them exposed. Our affections are going to be turned more towards that sin than to our Savior. And thus, when we so treasure sin in our own hearts and lives, we will not, we cannot receive God's word as we ought. James is saying there's a connection between these two things. We need to remove sin, 
even as we receive the implanted word. Peter actually makes the exact same point in Peter's first epistle. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. When he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then immediately after telling us to put away all of those things, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Let me just apply this to your life. I just want to ask you, is the cause of your spiritual stagnation the fact that you are not dealing with your sin? Perhaps is that why you have such difficulty receiving the word of God, because you aren't dealing properly with your sin. Now you might say, I'm dealing with most of my sin. I'm trying to put off a lot of my sin. But I ask you, is there that one pet sin, that one treasured, coddled sin that you refuse to let go of? If you're honest with yourself, your whole spiritual life suffers as a result of it. And every time God's word confronts that sin, what do you want to do? You ignore what God's word teaches, or you try to put it out of your mind immediately, and you're compromised as a result, because you're trying to to have God's word and still have this sin as well. Bible's clear, it cannot be like that. It cannot be. Hasn't your experience shown that you can't at the same time treasure sin and treasure God? And the thing that you must do is you must repent. Cut off that sin. Turn away from it. James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Friends, that is the path to being able to receive and grow by the word of God in your life. The filth of sin needs to be removed. Let's move on. Secondly, how are we to receive uh, God's word? Not only the filth of sin must be removed, but secondly, the attitude of meekness must be adopted. The attitude of meekness must be adopted. You'll notice that again in verse 21. We are to receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, the word meekness uh, refers here to uh, the Christian grace of humility. It's an attitude with which we come to God's word. It's the spirit with which we approach uh, the Bible. What it means is simply that we are to place ourselves under God's word rather than over it. You know, there are lots of different approaches that people can take to the Bible, lots of different reasons that people read the Bible. Uh, Some like to read the Bible uh, simply for information. They want to know what it is that Christianity teaches or the things that Jesus of Nazareth did. It's interesting that there are many Bible scholars in academic positions in universities and colleges, many of whom don't believe a word that the Bible says. They read the Bible for information. Uh, There are others who approach the Bible differently, that is, they read the Bible in order to judge it. That is, they 
put the Bible under uh, their own uh, radar. Uh, They pick and choose those things uh, that are or are not acceptable. And so they maybe say, well, I like the idea that God is a, a cosmic helper of sorts, that there's a God who exists. But they reject the idea, the biblical account of or that God created the world in six days or that certain events of the Old Testament occurred. Uh, there are many who say, well, I like Jesus as a good teacher, but I don't believe that he performed miracles or that he rose from the dead. I like the idea that Jesus died on the cross, but I don't, uh, or excuse me, there are, but I don't want the part that he Uh, died as a substitute for our sin or took our sin upon himself. Uh, There are some who say, well, I like some of the Bible's moral teachings to love our enemies, but I can't stomach other parts of the Bible's teaching. There are many who consider the Bible to be a time-bound, culture-bound book that is unable to speak across the ages. And so what they do is they put the Bible... uh, underneath, as it were, their own enlightened reason to determine what parts are acceptable and what are not. So there are those who read the Bible to judge it. There's a third approach that some take to the Bible, and that is to read the Bible simply as custom, as a custom. Uh, Maybe a child might grow up in a Christian home, and it's simply what you do in your home. You read the Bible, but the words really don't mean anything at all. You hear the Bible, it has a customary part in your life. You're not looking to be changed by it, though. But in distinction from each of those other ways of approaching the Bible, James here calls us to yet another way. He says we need to receive the word with meekness, which means that you and I need to receive the Word of God, allowing the Bible to stand over us. That is, we approach the Bible not being the judge of it, but rather allowing it to judge us. And we come to it saying, Lord, by the Scriptures, expose my sin. By the Scriptures, reveal to me more about Jesus Christ. Lord, by the Scripture, strengthen my faith. Cause me to tremble at your threatenings and to embrace your promises. Lord, deepen my love for the Savior. Cause me to catch a vision for the greatness and majesty of my Lord's saving work. God, show me the path of obedience. In other words, we approach the Bible saying, Lord, change me by it. Uh, Our Puritan forefathers seem to understand that that the way that we approach the scriptures is important. There's actually an entire question of our Westminster larger catechism and an entire question of our Westminster shorter catechism that address this question of how it is that we receive the word of God. Let me just quote the shorter catechism answer. It says, How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? This is Shorter Catechism 90. That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it 
in our lives. The Shorter Catechism very wisely says that is how we must approach the scriptures. I can still remember the first worship service that I ever attended in a Reformed church. I was um, 18 years old. I had just begun my freshman year of a college. It was a wonderful, simple, God-glorifying worship service. And I can remember finally in that service we came to the time for the scriptures to be read and the sermons to be preached. And we were in a room of about 200 uh, people. And suddenly I saw 200 Bibles come out and go open. And I pull out my Bible and I open it with everybody else. And eyes that follow along in the scriptures as the scripture is being read. And then after... Uh, the scripture was read, the people kept their Bibles open in front of them and uh, they fixed their eyes upon the preacher and as the preacher spoke to them, they they would listen to him and then their eyes would turn again to the Bible and then back to the preacher and and then they would sometimes maybe have a notebook and people would uh, jot down notes and I'd look all the way down my pew and it seemed everywhere I was looking, this is what people were doing and I I remember having just the real palpable uh, sense, again I don't know what was in people's hearts, but as I looked around, I had a sense here were a congregation of people who desired to be shaped, changed by the Word of God. It was an incredible, it was an incredible sense that we had. They were humbly receiving the Word of God. And I just simply ask you, is that how you receive God's Word? Do you come to it daily when you read the Scriptures, when you open it in family worship, when you sit under the word of God preached, do you say, Lord, I want to be changed by this word. Show me more of Jesus. Show me my duty. Fill me with the hope of heaven. Lord, change me by the word of God. Sometimes we're good at evaluating preachers, but really more importantly, we need to be evaluating listeners. And the question after, a word, after the word has been preached to us is not so much how has it been preached, but how have I received it? Have I received it with a desire to believe everything that God tells me, to obey every word that he directs me to do? How have you received the word of God? We are to receive it with meekness, placing ourselves under that word. So that's the second point. We uh, are not only to, uh, uh, first of all, put away the filthiness of sin, but we are to adopt an attitude of meekness. But now thirdly, how are we to read or to receive the word of God? Uh, Thirdly, the goal of salvation must be kept in sight. The goal of salvation must be kept in sight. If we uh, return again to that analogy of our spiritual diet, you know, why is it that a, a, an individual might uh, choose to eat well? Well, it's for any number of reasons. You might say it's because it gives me more energy or it helps me to avoid certain diseases or other problems later in life if I try to eat well now and take care of my body. And so when you look at that plate of vegetables that you really don't want to eat, or you have to say no to that extra piece of chocolate cake, in the back of your mind you're saying, the reason I'm doing this is because there's a a, a larger goal at work here. I, I want to be careful what I put into my body because 
I, I want my body to respond well. Well, there's something similar here with the Word of God. Why is it that we are to receive the Word of God? James gives us a goal that is to inspire us. And he says you are to receive that Word because that Word is able to save your souls. This Word is able to save your souls. And you need to have an eye on that. Well, what does it mean when it refers here to the saving of our souls? Now, the scriptures speak of salvation um, at times in a past, as a past tense, sometimes as present tense, sometimes as future. So salvation as past refers really to that moment of our conversion, our regeneration of which we uh, spoke uh, earlier. And so Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved. That not of your, uh, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is uh, the work of God. And so uh, that's speaking of our past salvation. But the Bible also at times speaks of, of salvation in the present tense. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 to work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Uh, and when it speaks of it in the present tense, it refers to that continued work of sanctification that God is doing in our lives, giving us a greater love for our Savior and a greater hatred of sin and setting our hopes upon heaven. Okay, It's the continued work of God conforming us to the image of Christ. And at times as well, the Bible uses salvation in a future tense. Uh, here we might speak of Romans 13. Your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And here, salvation is referring to our final glorification, that moment when uh, we shall finally and fully be delivered from all sin and dwell uninterruptedly in the presence of God uh, forever, that moment of Christ's return, ultimately, when we shall have resurrection uh, bodies. That's what uh, salvation in its fullest sense refers to. So what is what is James talking about here when he says that we need to receive this word which is able to save your souls? I think he's already spoken about, back in verse 18, about that salvation of time past. Here I think what's primarily in view is uh, the present and the future salvation which God is now doing and will do in our lives. And he's simply saying this, that the Bible is that which is able to lead you into an ever-deepening communion with God. It's the Bible which is creating in you an ever-increasing likeness to Jesus Christ. It's the Bible which will prepare you for that great day when Christ appears out of heaven and gathers His church everlastingly unto Himself. That that is what the Bible is doing in you. This is no ordinary book. This is an extraordinary, supernatural, God-sent book that is working everlasting salvation in you. It's a marvelous thing. So why would we not receive and continue to receive the Word of God? So when the Bible appears to you to be dull or you find it difficult 
to read the scriptures that day or when you come to church with your mind distracted a thousand different ways, remember, this is what the Lord uses to work salvation in my life. This is what is able to save my soul. And so we pay attention to it. We pay attention to the word of God. Dear friends, can you keep your eye on that? We are to be those, as James tells us, to receive with meekness this implanted word which is able to save our souls. Are you going to be a Christian who is continually receiving this word of God? Put off all filthiness. Receive it with meekness. Keep your eye on the salvation which the Lord is doing through it. Might he use his word to cause us to grow and to do that great and mighty work which only he is able to do, that work of salvation in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this directive out of your holy word. We give you thanks that James wrote these things so long ago, but that it is the ever-relevant always important, all-sufficient word of God to us today. Lord, grant that we would pay heed to what you say and that we would be those who are ever and always receiving the word of God, which is able to save our souls. Lord, our God, you know the needs of each one here. We pray that you would enable those who continue to coddle and treasure certain sins in their hearts to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We do pray that those who are tempted to sit over your word, passing judgment on it, might instead take the posture of humility under your word and be led in their spiritual lives by it. And we pray, Lord, for all the people here you would enable them to see that this is the very thing which is able to save their souls. O God in heaven, grant that we would pay heed to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.